Good morning, church. It's great to see you guys. Uh, thanks for making a worship special for us already and what we've already got to do together. Um, for those that were even serving in different ways this morning at 9 o'clock and now have rolled into the service time at 1030, uh, just thanks for just how many people are involved from the worship team to out in the lobby to the children's area, uh, at Cove, at downtown. Just, it just means a lot what we get to do together on Sunday. And I am just appreciate the blessing that it, it brings to me and to my family. So I hope this morning is going to be an encouragement and a blessing to you as well. And so for those that are at the downtown campus, good morning, uh, watching online. I'm really excited about this section of scripture that we're going to be moving into starting today because it ties so much with what I think we're going to be exposed to and what we're going to be hearing through the missions weekend uh, and, and then into the next few weeks as we look at Matthew's gospel. And so uh, I thought, man, with a missions weekend and then all of a sudden some, some passages, some scriptures that really lend itself well to thinking about missions and evangelism and kind of what it means to follow Christ and, and what our role is uh, as we follow Christ and what his heart is for the local world and for the global world. And like, so we're going we're gonna to start experiencing some of that, I hope, this morning. And, and as it builds over the next couple of weeks, I'm just trusting that the Lord has some, uh, a timeliness in that for, for us. And there's a reason why it's not just this Sunday's message will be about sharing your faith, but it'll be next week and the week after. And you're going to start hearing some things in Matthew chapter 10 that are going to really encourage you as well. So let's look at the passage this morning. Matthew chapter 9, as it wraps up, verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. So as we look at this passage and it, it may be one that's familiar to you. Maybe you've heard this idea of what it means to pray and the harvest and it's kind of white and fruitful and, there's a transition happening in Matthew's gospel. And so I want to highlight what's happening within the gospel itself as we get to this particular section. Because this section here at the end of Matthew is really a bookend. And it, it rounds out, it finishes out one section, the previous few chapters that we've been looking at over the last few months. And it transitions us into the next section in which Matthew is going to give us kind of this experience of the disciples and Jesus' words to them and what his message and sermon is to them and, and, and then ascending them out. And so let me show you what the first book, what the beginning of this looked like, a parallel passage very similar to what we just read in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, those having seizures and the paralytics, and he healed them. And in Matthew chapter 4, at this point, it moves into Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this famous sermon, this presentation of what it is to live the Christian life. And out of the Sermon on the Mount, there is the work of Jesus. Amen. And so you get Jesus' words, 
the sermon, and then the work, the, the, the kind of outworking of the sermon, we watch that through chapter 7 and 8 and 9. And so we end up at this passage where it seems like Matthew is saying something very similar again, that Jesus is walking, he's going throughout the area, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, people are coming, the crowds are building. And so Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9 create these kind of launch points. Matthew chapter 4 for the Sermon on the Mount. This particular section, Matthew chapter 9, is a launch point for the sermon of mission. It's the mission sermon that's going to follow, which again, it's going to be fantastic for us to move into a missions weekend and then look at chapter 10 and what Jesus is going to tell the disciples as he sends them out on mission, as he commissions them. And so when we begin to look at this particular section of scripture, it's this sense that if we're really going to follow Christ, our hearts are going to at some point get tied into mission, tied into evangelism. There's something that Jesus cares about as he looks at the crowd, and he's really inviting us in. He's inviting the disciples to also care, to also consider what he sees and what he's watching. And so this morning, we're going to look at the motive for mission. What's the motive? What's, what's behind all of this missionary efforts that we have been experienced and exposed to in different ways in our lives being part of the church? Both scriptures, the Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9, are transition scriptures in which it says Jesus went. He went throughout. He went through Galilee, through the other areas, the cities, the villages. Jesus is walking around. God is moving on foot. And I... I love what, what begins to be highlighted in that is there was a proximity of Jesus to the people. That there was something that God was doing. That God was not waiting for people lost in sin to find him. That God came and he moved and dwelt and walked and was present. There's a proximity Right? You're hearing in the passage already of Jesus' life, personhood to the people around him. And so he's close and people are walking up and God is on the move. And in other words, this idea of like being sent or going, being on mission, isn't something that we do for God, but is something that God does through us. This is something that God does. We, we have a missionary God, a God on the move. We talk about this in different ways at River Tree. Uh, one of our core values is pursuing what's next. In other words, there's, there's something next for you. That in the Christian life, there is this movement. There is this sentness. There is an, a, a journey, a walk. As Jesus walks, so we also walk. And when you're on a journey, the scenery changes. And so in our lives... There is a, a movement and a changing of sceneries as God takes us from one place to the next, one relationship to the next, to share, to encourage, to spread the gospel. Uh, a, a question that we'll ask from time to time is, where in the world does God want me to go next? Meaning it's not just church, right? The, the world that God largely cares about is out there. And so it's not just how much can I do here on campus with River Tree, but there's something about how River Tree then positions me to be available and moving and sent to the world. God is preparing people for what is next for you because it's next for them. Meaning God is doing something in you. And there's this confidence that I hope will grow in us over the next few weeks that if God is nudging you, if God is leading you, if God is kind of moving you towards a person, towards a situation, that 
it's not just you that's actually being worked upon, but God's preparing that person, that situation for you, for what you're going to do. This is, I love this. The challenge is getting Jesus in your life, right? And getting some good friends can often be the stopping point for a lot of Christians. It's wonderful to know God. It's wonderful to have a relationship with Jesus. And then you gather a few good Christian friends that where you are known and encouraged and supported and you find a good church. And for most people, that can be it. That can be the stopping point. But Jesus is showing us something in this passage and further that it is your good, wonderful relationship with God and others that is the way in which we go. It's with God and with others that we teach and help and serve and minister and comfort. Right? This is what our lives are meant to do. They're meant to move. They're meant to go. So look what Jesus says in verse 36 of Matthew 9. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The gospel writers love to tell us what Jesus noticed what he notices and what he sees. And it's happened already multiple times in this chapter. In verse two, it says that Jesus saw their faith, right? The friends bring the paralyzed man to Jesus, drop him on a mat through the roof and, and Jesus heals him. And Jesus makes the comment about, it says he saw their faith. He made a comment about their faith. Then in, in verse nine, we see Jesus walking through a town. He sees Matthew, it says he saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth. He saw him. Later on, the woman reaching out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment to be healed, it, it says that Jesus stopped, turned, saw her, and said, your faith has made you well. And here, again, the end of the chapter, it says that Jesus saw the crowds. I just, I, Jesus is a noticer. Like he's seeing things. He sees people. Do you? Do you notice? Are, are you aware of the people around you? Are, are you observant? And not only did Jesus do a really special job of noticing people, but Jesus felt something. There was something in his own heart for them. It says that he had compassion for them. Compassion, uh, many New Testament scholars think that compassion is the most, uh, most prevalent characteristic of Christ in his ministry. The compassion, the compassion of Jesus is mentioned more than any other quality in which he ministered and which he walked. Compassion means, it's this, it's, you pull the word apart, uh, compassio. Come means with, passio means to suffer. So the word compassion means to suffer with. It means to, to, to actually kind of, to feel, uh, to be gripped by someone else's circumstance. To, to be heavy-hearted, to kind of be weighted down. Like, it's this idea, it grabs you, right? What other people are walking through, their life, their circumstance, it, you feel it deeply. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus looks at this crowd, and he suffers with them. He has compassion on them. And because Jesus suffers with people, there is a mission towards them. There is a movement towards them. Right, because Jesus has compassion, because Jesus suffers, he forms this mission to them. Jesus' heart goes out to those because of their need, because of things unmet, because of what he sees. 
I have a, a friend of mine, and anytime we catch lunch during the week, he always asks not to go out to like some big restaurant. Like I'm always saying, hey, do you want to go to a Little Rosie's? And he's like, no, let's just, like, just come by my office or, or let's go find a quiet place. And after doing this a couple of times, I asked him, I said, why are, why are we not going to Little Rosie's? I really like Little Rosie's. And he's like, well, when I walk into a place like that, uh, I get overwhelmed. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I just see, I see people, I see brokenness, I see need, I just see a lot, and it's, it's too much. And I'm like, oh, you're more spiritual than me. Like, I just kind of knew, like, oh, I just like the pocket tacos at, at Little Rosie's really a lot. And this, but, but it's teaching me, what do, what do we see? Do we see people? Do we see need? Is there something in us that suffers with? Because Jesus looks at the crowd and he, he suffers with them. And what I find so fantastic about this is there is this sense of what we should expect if God just showed up. And then there's this other thing of what we get through Jesus, the Son of God. Right? And, and what the, this is what the gospel is informing us. Right? That we begin to realize that the Christian mission is not motivated by Jesus' disgust about sin. Or even what he believes everyone owes him as God, their honor, their glory, their lives, which we do, which that would be a fine thing for him to feel. But the gospel tells us that Jesus, God the Son, comes in power because he has compassion on us, on those who are broken and deep within sin. He comes because he feels deeply, because he's moved for us. I, this is beautiful, right? Like, it wouldn't be wrong for Jesus just to erupt in anger. It would be completely okay for that. But Jesus not only sees us, he has compassion on us, and he's willing to walk with us and to touch the very things that are broken, our pride, our lust, our greed, to be close to it, to minister it, to, to feel it, to let it weigh on him. And I think what I would offer to you and challenge myself is like, don't be, don't be annoyed Christians. Don't just be annoyed and irritated Christians that look at the world and think about all the things that would just be better if people would stop behaving so badly and if they would just be moral again and if they would just get their bad behavior to change to something better, everything would work out. And this kind of the idea of like the glory days of what it used to be 10, 20, 40, 50 years ago and how everything was so much better then and now it's just a, you know, a dumpster fire, whatever. You know, like just... Jesus looks at the crowd and his heart is moved and he feels burdened. Their situations, they, they grip him and he looks at them and it says he sees them harassed and helpless. People who are depressed, people who are oppressed. And they are tossed and turned because of all kinds of reasons. And a lot of them are dealing with the, uh, the falsehood of kind of a secular living world lies. In that they live in a world which tells you over and over that you can find happiness and fulfillment if you'll just work hard, if you'll just have nice things, if you'll just put your identity and hope in 
the things that you acquire, maybe your success, maybe your reputation, your, your vocation. It's the romantic lie that someone else in the world, if you'll just meet the right person, that they can meet all of your needs and complete you. And people are just, they're helpless in so many ways, believing all the lies this world offers you of where real peace and rest are found. And it's not just that. Jesus is also deeply, deeply troubled in poor spiritual leadership that's guiding these people that there's this group of religious leaders in the day that are just corrupt jesus calls them blind guides filled with greed and self-indulgence and they're believing they're, they're they're propagating this idea that if you could just be good if you could just check enough boxes if you could just make enough sacrifices if you could just not sin anymore then you god would finally be happy with you and if you could just get your life morally right and do all the necessary things then your life would be okay and jesus is like oh they need a shepherd they need a good shepherd. They need real truth. And when Jesus looks at them and he sees this, he says, they look like a sheep without a shepherd. And as he says that, he's giving us an Old Testament hope that when the Messiah would come, we would have a good shepherd. We would have somebody that really, truly cared for us and knew us. And when Jesus says this, he is fulfilling Isaiah 40, 11, which says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Micah chapter 5, 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. When Jesus sees the crowd, he slows down. He has compassion on them. And then he gives them this image of, oh man, what you need is a shepherd. And he's gonna be that. And then he, he turns the metaphor. He turns it from this, kind of shepherd and sheep to this harvest metaphor. Verse 37, and then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. When Jesus looks and he has his disciples, they, they look with him, look, the harvest is plentiful. He's saying, look at the potential Look at what's possible. Jesus is not upset. He's not discouraged. He sees what is possible. And the question that comes back is, do you? Do you see what is possible? Do you see a, a harvest that's plentiful? Do you, do you see potential when you step back and look and look around you? Look at your workspace. Look at your neighborhood. Do you see it? Or do you worry that, man, everything just seems to be lost? When, when Jesus says, Look, the harvest is plentiful. He's saying not only is there all this potential, but it's present. Like, it's now. There's something that God is doing right now. Can you see it? And I love what John says in his gospel as he, as he highlights something that Jesus said in such a similar way. John chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus says, do not say there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. We have these sayings. One of them would be like, well, Rome wasn't built in a day. You've heard that. And it's this idea that, man, like really important things, significant things take a long time. Right, to come about. There's a, there's a calendar. There, there's a schedule that's needed. You, you need to kind of stay at it, stay at it, stay at it. Don't give up. Over time, right, something significant and special will happen. And Jesus says, not like this. 
Not like this harvest. This harvest, something is happening even right now. Jesus is saying that the power of the gospel is seen when hearts hear the word, where the, the, the word is sown in their hearts and they produce a harvest immediately. There's something that happens in our lives because of God's work that bears fruit immediately. Jesus is saying that all of the waiting, it's over. You don't have to wait for everything, especially this, that those that are planting seeds and those that are harvesting are going to celebrate together. There's going to be people planting. There's going to be people harvesting together. Both the sower and the reaper are going to celebrate. Amos chapter 9, 13 talks about this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Jesus is saying to us that the age of waiting has passed. That we are now in this perpetual season of reaping and harvesting. That there's a miracle at work. And, 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 and our walking among, our, our going into the harvest, that God is using that in a way, our obedience to God's will and to work, that there are going to be results in others and in you. That not only are you going into the harvest and people are going to experience new life and a connection with Christ, but you yourself in sowing the seed are going to experience joy. The joy of the one who is sharing and the joy of the one who is hearing and listening are going to mingle. It's, it's a beautiful expression of that God is at work that there's this incredible potential and there's this incredible present opportunity and it points at the same time to God's providence. Right? When Jesus has the disciples look out at the crowd and says, look at the field, it's plentiful. Look at the field, it's ready. You know what he's telling them? This wasn't your work. You're here now. But the harvest, the sowing, the growing, it's the work of another. It's the work of God. And now God has done this and so now your job is to obediently kind of walk out into the harvest and to begin to simply gather what another has already sown. You don't have to be an expert Christian on kind of church planting and missiology to go out and to do this work. That's what he's saying. You just begin to move. Jesus is telling us what practical Christianity looks like. It's your life trusting in the faithfulness and providence and power of God that there is a present and potential harvest all around you. Now see it. Ask God to give you eyes to see it. Feel for them, for what they don't have because they don't know Jesus. And then go and know that the very word, the very nudge, the very inclination in your heart to go to them is something that they, God, has already been preparing them to receive. Not, it's not just you working, but God is working on the other end of this too to make both joys mingle, to make both joys overflow. I love how he just gives us a real clear insight into what the Christian life looks like, what it looks like to follow Jesus. It reminded me of a Section, a, a quote that Charles Spurgeon said, famous English pastor and preacher, 
has some challenge in it. So here is words. It says, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipations would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. I didn't know what that word is, so in parentheses, that's me helping myself here. A person who suffers indigestion or irritability. That's that maybe some of us. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God. Let us have a practical Christianity. That's good. So every now and then, the scriptures invite you to look backwards. Like they, they ask you to look at your life, to look through your life to see what you care about. They ask you to say like, look at your day, look at your behaviors, look at your activities, look at what you're busy about and that will reveal what you ultimately value, what's ultimately in your heart. And this is what we begin to see that if, if you say that you follow Christ, but you have nothing to do with expressing this Christ-likeness of mission and evangelism, then this is an area for us to repent in. This is an area for us to examine and go like, I, I can't be following Christ and all of what that means. If Christ looks on the crowd with compassion, if he moves and walks among them, if he heals and ministers and shares and teaches, and that's not something happening in my own life, that's the challenge. There's the moment for us. When we think about this work, this harvest and evangelism, sharing the gospel, helping others, the urgency in it, I can tell you what tags along. I, you may be already experiencing it. Guilt and shame. When we highlight this, man, it's just, it's right there. It's right there to come alongside it. And so let me help you understand what God is really saying here as he's inviting us into the harvest. Because doing the will of God or being obedient is not just something we do for God, but it is something that is good for us. In other words, God's will and being obedient is the best life possible. God's will and being obedient is the best life possible. Right? We often think about being obedient, doing these things that God asks us to do as a way to not make him mad, right? so that the, he's okay with me, but what's happening here is the things that God is asking us to do are not just things he's asking of us, but they're he's things he's asking for us, for us. Why do you tell your children to look both ways before they cross the road? It's what you want for them. Why do I tell my kids, don't put your fingers in the electrical outlet? Is it because I just get annoyed flipping the circuit breaker back on? Like that's a, again, I know. Why do we tell our kids to eat healthy foods? Why were you told to make good grades? Why were you told to go to bed on time? Like, why were we told to do these things? Because 
if you'll do these things, there is a life that opens up to you of health, of reward, of knowing the value of a good day's work, of, of feeling the success and being more useful, right? There's, there's, this is what God has for us. It's not just what he wants from us. It's what he has an idea of for us. So when God says, forgive those who have wronged you, he knows that if you don't, you will become a prisoner of your own unforgiveness. When God says, be a generous person, give stuff away all the time, it's not that he needs your stuff. It's that he knows that if you don't give your stuff away all the time, your stuff will eventually own you. It'll become the most important thing in your life. When God says, look, notice the people around you. Feel deeply for their circumstances and their situation and go to them as a messenger of good news, of grace and love, of what Christ is going to do for them on the cross and through the resurrection. When you go to them in that way, then not only are they given the best life you also walk out the best life. It's the life of seeing someone else's joy mingle with yours. It's the life of coming to Jesus together with someone else, of them understanding some things that you have also come to love and embrace. Like, this is the best life. Jesus isn't saying, look at the crowd and how bad they are. Now go out and be guilty. Go out and do this in a, in a state of shame or just kind of worried what God thinks. Do you know he doesn't actually say, go out. Interesting twist on what Jesus actually tells them to do. After he tells them to look around, he, instead of saying like, now go get busy, you know what he says? Pray. That's, a, that's an interesting twist. Jesus says, therefore pray. You know why? Because Jesus as well seems, sees the situation as quite overwhelming. That the harvest is huge and there are hardly any workers and so at the very beginning of this kind of missional send out, as Jesus is commissioning the disciples and launching this missionary movement, we realize this, we stop and we pray because we do not make ourselves into workers. We pray for that making in us. It is something that God does in us. And this is a great example of how we see prayer in scriptures. You know, prayer in scripture is often this this posture of coming to God with our, our hopes, our requests, asking him for things, petitioning him for things. But prayer is often, I would say, highlighted as communion with God. That when we pray, we stop and we find ourselves acutely aware of God's presence. And in those moments of conversation or silence, it's the things that God cares about that get relayed to our own hearts. And we begin to care about the things that God cares about. We begin to take on the heart that God has in our own heart through prayer. And it also, stopping and pray, stopping and praying before we move into the harvest, make sure that we're just not activists. That we're not moving into the harvest just letting people know what we're upset about, what we're against. But we're moving into the harvest with a sense of compassion and a heart for the things that grieve God's heart, remembering that this has been God's mission all along. And so through prayer, we align our hearts with his heart. Through prayer, we ask for what God wants. And when we stop praying, we stop believing that God really wants to save people. So we pray. And we pray earnestly. 
And I love what Jesus says here. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. That, that word, that, that idea of sending out, that's the same word uh, that gets used later in Matthew 4 um, to exercise, and to, to cast out. So, so Jesus is like, cast them out, thrust them out, send them out, right? Almost to exercise, right? the followers of Christ into the world. In other words, in just a few minutes, these doors are going to open up and you don't have to go home, but you cannot stay here. <laughs> you, there's a world, right, that God cares about. And not only is he nudging you and positioning you and readying you to say something, but he's also preparing those to hear it. And this is the confidence that we begin to build is that God is up to something, that God is accomplishing something through this. Jesus is saying, look around, see people, suffer with them, feel compassion, resist the tendency to just be annoyed and irritated. Pray for the wonderful role of gathering what God has been doing. Be confident. Be confident that God has already been there. And that if God is moving you, right, God is leading you, to the next cubicle, to the next coffee shop, to the next convenience store, to something else that starts with a C. Like if he's, if he's taking you, right, if he's taking you there, then he's, he's preparing there for you, for what you have to say, for the peace that you will bring, for the good word that you will bring, for the heart that you will bring. And God will use those simple steps of obedience and let you be part of a harvest that is being gathered. And it'll be a joy to see your joy and their joy mingle. I, I mean, if you're, if you're here today and you're still discovering Jesus, like you've already sensed, this message seems a bit for the home team. And you're still exploring faith. Can I remind you of something as we close? that Jesus sees you. This passage says that, that Jesus has compassion for you. Often we think that God notices us because of the things that we're good at, because of our successes, because of our strengths. Actually, it's the gaze of God that turns our way because of what we need, because of where we hurt, because of what we struggle with, because of where we've sinned. And as you hear the heart of Jesus to send people into the harvest, then know that you've got potential and God sees it. And God is going to great missionary efforts to make sure that you hear the gospel and that you're part of this harvest. He loves you that much. I just wanna pray for us as we close and invite the worship teams at both campus to come. So would you just take a posture of prayer as we conclude? And let my prayer just affirm something that God, you give us wonderful things to do. So help us to pray, help us to engage, help us to be faithful. I confess, Lord, that I am prone to vagueness 
because commitment to specific actions makes me uncomfortable. But help us. Help us this morning, God, avoid general commitments to obedience and instead let our, our, our words be specific. Let our obedience be in specific instances as we see the gospel go out that we might see it bring life to others, that we might see it bring life to our own Christian walk. Lord, we thank you that when you looked upon the crowds, your heart was revealed. And you moved and you ministered and you healed and you taught and you suffered with us. And how the cross took that suffering to the ultimate place of sacrifice, to the ultimate place of carrying our needs and our sin and our brokenness. And when you carried it there, you began to do something new. And it was like a starting over spot for all of those who would believe in you who would sense your love, who would see God's purpose in everything that you did. And this great saving work, this great rescuing of a people would be revealed from a heart that truly cared, that deeply loves, that suffered with us, walked among us. And as you've done that, Jesus, for now help us to do that too. Help us to be in those places where the gospel still goes out and where the sower and the reaper, where their joys mingle. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.